0: Right from its onset, Advent calls us to a time of waiting, of testing the limits of our patience and of what we think is possible. Advent is probably one of the most misunderstood of the church seasons. And so I was delighted to read Tish Harrison Warren's opinion piece in The Times last Sunday about Advent. Uh, You may have seen it as well. Miss Warren is an Anglican priest and she reminds us that Advent bids us first to pause and look with complete honesty at the darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, she says, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict Violence, suffering, Advent holds space for our grief, and it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing to our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. It's not easy to look at the areas of brokenness in the, in the world or in our own lives. And doing so challenges our sense of control, our sense of justice. It challenges our sense of wholeness and sometimes our sense of hopefulness. And we fear looking at this brokenness and Advent because it can be so easy to fall into it. We want to be encouraged by possibilities and not pulled into the, the despair by what is not possible. But it is precisely what is impossible that we must talk about today. It is no wonder that in a season like Advent, we turn with frequency to the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. In Isaiah's time, around 700 before the Common Era, the Assyrians had swept in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and were laying siege to the southern kingdom of Judah, including its capital, Jerusalem. Isaiah is dealing with all kinds of dilemmas about how to inspire people to be motivated around things that seem impossible. The chaos around Isaiah and the people Isaiah is talking with is intense. See if this sounds familiar. The economy is shaken, the political leadership is struggling and is unpredictable. The last thing people feel is possible is the peaceable kingdom that Isaiah is describing. And yet laid out before them is not only this vision, but a list of tools to build that peace that they are longing to have among them. We often read these tools as a list of leadership skills that one leader brings, but this list of skills is a list for the whole community to embody. Listen to this list again. It's a good, solid toolkit for caring for each other. Bring a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord, don't judge by appearances, don't decide by hearsay, judge the needy with the righteous, and decide with equity for those who suffer. These elements are each in their own way, aspects of really good listening skills. It probably sounds trite to stand before you today and suggest that a deeper, bolder, caring ministries should focus around listening. But before you dismiss the ideas oversimplified, hear me out. I want you to think about a time when somebody truly listened to you. I Spent a good deal of time thinking about this question for myself and I realized that it's a little bit more complicated than I thought when I first approached this question. We all know those moments when we are truly heard. And the example that came to my mind actually happened a few years ago when I was on retreat with the board of the Religious Education Association. It's a board that's made up of people all along the spectrum of religious experiences from different faiths, from conservative, liberal, and progressive backgrounds. And it was my second year on the board as a student representative while I finished my doctoral work at Fordham. We started the retreat that spring in a big conference room and went about the business of introducing ourselves and our work. I was in a unique position of being a scholar in formation and a long-standing practitioner in the field of religious education. Mine was a valuable perspective, but I always felt a bit intimidated by the scholarly folks. And as we went around the room, I mentioned my work and my studies and my children, and I enjoyed hearing everyone's stories, old and new. And as the meeting broke up for the evening, we retired to one of the smaller kitchens for dinner in an informal living room. Number of people were already spinning yarns and catching up with each other and taking positions about the NCAA men's basketball tournament, which was just underway. And with my plate on my lap, I took a seat in the corner lazy boy near my friend Joyce. But before we could begin even any small talk, she turned to me and said, I was so curious watching you introduce yourself tonight and throughout the meeting. You're so thoughtful and careful about what you say about your personal life, depending on who you're sitting next to and speaking to. That must be exhausting. My own response, which was building as she spoke, which was full of defenses, as she spoke that last line, it fell away. I admit I was rather tongue-tied at that point. It is exhausting to measure the newness in the room before I decided if I wanted to mention my now ex-wife who I had been with for 20 years at that point. And it wasn't that I was ashamed or awkward about being out, but it really hit me that night how consciously or subconsciously I still had to read each new room I entered and decide how much of myself and my life was safe to share. What I could say that would be easier for them and for me to omit. What a privilege that I can choose to pass sometimes. What an exhausting privilege. I think I muttered something to Joyce like, yes, it is exhausting, thank you for noticing. I do give a lot of thought to how I tell my story but I can tell you in that moment I felt wrung out like I had cried on her shoulder for hours. But what I was experiencing was somebody listening, not only to what I said, but what was not said. Joyce has great skills in areas of listening. She's a pastor and she's taught pastoral care for many years in several different seminaries. But what she brought into focus for me that night is part of what Isaiah means when he is talking to his community and saying that the one shall not judge by what the eyes see or decide by what the ears hear. Caring for each other isn't just built about listening to what we say to each other. It's built about around what we don't say and how we listen in those gaps. Caring for each other is listening for silences, for things that are too painful and too exhausting to say. Educators among us may know this idea as what Eisner calls the null curriculum, a way of learning by which we learn by what is not said or taught or prayed with words. Could have told you a more flattering story about my own listening skills this morning, I suppose. But the trouble with that is that I don't think any of us have all the answers. But I do believe that together, we embody the best of these qualities of the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And through our work as a community, we come near this peaceable kingdom. The idea that Isaiah puts out for us of not judging by what our eyes see or what our ears hear is part of what links us back so strongly to what we were discussing about Advent. These skills of caregiving that Isaiah is challenging the community to move toward may seem like behaviors that happen once the peaceable kingdom is really upon us. But in reality, these skills are what help us when the brokenness of our lives and the world come before us, threatening to disrupt our hope in order to feel the impossible hopes of the peaceable kingdom, we have to be able to listen to one another so deeply that we can say when it's needed, that's not possible. As we worship together this morning on this second Sunday of Advent, I want us to ask ourselves what kind of caregivers we are to one another when things don't go well, when justice is lost, when resistance is not enough, when sadness overtakes us, when we are frustrated and agitated with the world and with each other and with ourselves, when there is no peace, when the wolf is looking hungrily at the lamb out of the corner of her eye and when the lion walks by the trough of snow of straw, a different dinner on her mind. Because this happens, no? We read about it in the news. We live it every day. The routine screening test becomes something more. The healthy pregnancy suddenly is complicated. Taking care of aging parents and young children, sandwiches every day so fully you cannot breathe. As a community, we feel brokenness too. You are committed to being an anti-racist church because racism is real and it hurts. You are committed to economic justice because classism is not just an ism. It hurts people in real ways in their day-to-day life, people in this sanctuary, people in our community. It makes life exhausting. You are committed to binding up queer people because homophobia external and internal, transphobia, binary understanding of gender, these things are real and they really hurt. The brokenhearted are with us and the brokenhearted are us in so many ways. And yet we are hopeful this advent when we are together. We find our hope in our togetherness Isaiah's vision fills us with hope, not because we see the peaceable kingdom around us yet, but because we hope for it to come. We build what will be possible later by naming what is impossible now and listening to each other through those impossibilities. Muala Selkuk, who teaches Islamic education in Turkey, speaks about these listening moments as encounter. Encounter, she says, is the gift of our limitedness. It means bilingualism. Not everything can be said in one language. Each language is a way of life and a way of being in the world. In our encounters, we are gifted with limits and different ways of knowing. Advent is about looking our limitations deep in the eye and still having hope. Easy to say, but how in the world do we do that? We begin by deepening our understanding that not everything can be said in one language. Sometimes the language of caring uses no words at all. Sometimes caring is in the silence, And sometimes the language of caring is in walking with someone or holding their hand or just being present and being a reminder that God is present. The poet Mary Oliver perhaps explains this better than I am with her words. In her poem for a blue heron, she says, I'm not sure who first said to me, not everything is possible. Some things are impossible and gently took my hand and led me home. Our limitations do not squelch our hope. Knowing what is impossible and sitting with each other in that is the work of our caring for each other. In knowing what is impossible now, we learn what is more possible in the future. And like Isaiah, we gather hope in armfuls, believing with every fiber of our being that the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and the ability to listen beyond what our ears hear are what build us each day into a more caring people who will ever push the limits of what is possible.